0: Ned is the president. Prev- presi- we, were t- we were in our affectionate conversation Monday night about titles. So anyway, Ned's got the barbecue sauce, but 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 Jim's got the name, presiding overseer. So um, of what is uh, is the Harvest Network, which is a wonderful network of congregations. Tom Aestrike here is part of that. Lois Walford Johnson uh, is part of that network. Um, by the way, anybody ever read any of? Lois is, Lois is an is a, is a author with, like, how many books do you have out there? 38. Only 38 books out there. All right. Uh, she's a very accomplished author. Um, and uh, so part of that network. And he's also the pastor of the Harbor, which is down in Hastings, just south here of the cities, and has been there for 18 years, and um, an incredibly fruitful church incredibly fruitful church. Um, It's had an incredible impact on their community and beyond their influences. It's very significant. So um, Jim would not, he'll tell you more of his story. He's he's here not classically as an evangelist, but he's bringing us the evangelist voice because he has equipped his church to do evangelism and they're doing it. And so uh, Jim, would you welcome please with me my friend.
1: all right, fantastic one two three four am i on a little green lights on all right good fantastic um it is really really great to be here and uh how how many of you were at the uh spring retreat of f c a up in where was that yeah and uh, I was there, and in fact you 're going to hear some of the same things, except uh, maybe a little deeper um, today. Um, when I was up there, by the way, I had pneumonia, and I was heavily drugged i i I remember very little of what happened except mud. Do you remember mud <laughs> and 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 also the other thing I remember to be honest is just I came away with this tremendous sense I, I told Jim this uh, of the quality of the pastors that I met there was extraordinary, and uh, just the heart of uh, the pastors uh, really made an impression on me, and um, so I just have uh, just such an appreciation for FCA, and uh, Jim has just been a, uh, just a dear friend, and I, whenever people talk to me about what's going on in the cities, one of the first things I tell them about is this church and the prayer ministry uh, that Jim's been involved in. And I uh, just really appreciate him. And it's such an honor. I've just enjoyed it. I've been looking forward to coming to this. It's kind of a really visionary event. Uh, and I've just uh, enjoyed meeting Dale and Alan and, and Dave and Ned. You know, I, I, I knew Ned a little bit. We've had a couple opportunities to know it, But uh, the other brothers are new, and it's just really fun to, to be there. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, what? By the way, I just want to give a shout-out for the doties in their prayer room. Uh, they prayed for me yesterday. I was having some uh, pain. I got run over playing basketball two weeks ago at a YMCA pickup game by some 20-year-old kid who thought it was an NBA tryout, apparently. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just trying to explain to him, we do not take charges at the YMCA. But this kid ran me over, put his head right in my eye socket, at full speed, uh, I got a big black eye. still have a little remnant. And uh, then two days later, went to our harvest party, which is our alternative to Halloween that we do. We've got hundreds of people come from the community to our church, and basically we give sugar to their children. And uh, it's a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, I, I went as a, a football coach, and I had a huge purple eye. And everybody thought it was makeup. And so people kept coming up to me going, why didn't you do both eyes? And I kept saying, because it hurt. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't believe that it was a, it was a real black eye. And uh, so finally that's gone away. But it, it ended up, it messed up my neck, and then it got into my sciatic nerve, and it was painful. And uh, and so they prayed for me the, yesterday morning, and uh, boy, God's done a neat work. It's got up today and feel really good, so thank you. So go see them if you got any. <laughs> Problems. Um, all right, let's pray. And I just really have a heart today for you know what we're here for—for for equipping. You know, if we if we get into talking about the fivefold ministry, that's what we are talking about. And the thing that God has been really impressing on me is probably when we've read Ephesians four. It's kind of natural. We've gone as as there is a restoration of the fivefold ministry going on in the body of Christ, we go to the individuals who uh, are equipped and called by God to fulfill those offices. And that's kind of where our attention's been drifting. But if we really stand back and look at that, the context of Ephesians 4 is the body of Christ. I mean, they exist and are given, and the word gift, you know, uh, when it says Jesus gave gifts to men, it's not keros. It's It's a word that means present. He gave the church the present of these prepared leaders to equip them. But the dynamism in that is the body equipped. It's the corporateness. And I think sometimes as we've drifted towards the individuals, as they've been restored in in understanding of the body, we've missed the fact that our ultimate goal is a powerful corporate body. And let's face it, isn't individualism one of the chronic problems that we deal with in this culture? Right. And I think we need to start talking about this equipping in a corporate team sense more and more and more. And I've been telling people, I, one of the great diseases of the body of Christ in America is drifting from body to body. You know, Somebody walked into my church the other day after church, and I asked them, where do you go to church? She, she was trying to pray a blessing on me. I said, whoa... Well, so where do you go to church? She said, Oh, I go to a lot of places. And she got a 30 minute lecture. Because I, I will not put up with that anymore. You know, you need to be in a body. I said, if you're a wrist, you better be connected to some fingers and a forearm. Or you're wasting who you are and you're a bad steward. Okay? So the corporateness is where we need to go. So let's pray. Lord, we want to pray for the Holy Spirit to speak to us today in an equipping way, Lord. And we just recognize here um, that we are in many different places in many different situations, but that's the wonderful dynamic that you bring, that you can take one session and equip multitudes in different ways in different contexts. And so, Lord, that's that's our heart today, that we'd ask you to do that, Lord. You are so wonderful, so great. It is such an honor that you've not only called us sons and daughters, but you've made us partners in the family business, and you've worked, you've decided to work through us, the great plan of salvation on this earth. Lord, help us never ever forget the honor that that, is, that you've extended to us, and also the responsibility, the stewardship of such a call. And, uh, we just thank you. I thank you for the ministers. Called, equipped, faithful in this room. Just bless them now. Uh, in this session and throughout the rest of this conference, the mighty equipping happen for us, and may the body become strong in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As Jim kind of alluded, uh, it was funny. I laughed when he asked me to come and speak from the uh, evangelist's perspective, and I think I was somehow I talked to Tom and he laughed too, which because he knows me, <laughs> and. Uh, And so one of the things we're not going to do today is, just to be clear, is we're not going to talk about being an evangelist and about evangelism. When I teach on what the unique gifting of evangelist is, and the research has shown that there's about 10% of the people of the body of Christ have a fairly high developed ability in this area of evangelism. I always say that it's a combination of two things. That are really truly Holy Ghost dynamics. One is they seem to have an ability to present the gospel with extraordinary clarity and conviction. And, uh, you know, the basic truth of how you get saved. That when they tell somebody about that, it comes from them with great clarity and conviction. The other thing I believe is actually the gift of faith, you know, that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. The gift of, is actually somehow comes up out of them and is imparted while they're telling the gospel, because I like, I don't have this gift, and you know usually when I share the gospel with people, the response is, quit bothering me, okay, but I've known people, there's a great man here, uh, Stephen Ugin, who works with Trinity Works, who's kind of been part of this church, and uh, you know, the first time I met Stephen, I said, "Holy cow, this guy drips evangelism." I wanted to get saved, just being in his presence again. You know. But I, I, I just want to tell you quick about a guy that really was a, a neat brother in my life. He was an older man. He was actually an RAF pilot in the Second World War. Harry Full of Love was his name. Wouldn't you love to have a name like Full of Love? Yeah, and he was. And and Harry uh, was actually after the during the war, he met Jesus in uh, in his combat process, and went back to England, he was a, a Brit, he uh, went to seminary, he actually somehow, and I'm not even sure how, he ended up in the United States as a Lutheran pastor, and uh, he uh, was involved in the Lutheran charismatic movement in the 70s, and I met him in that context, and uh, he became a friend, and we, you know, he spoke at conferences that I was at, and, and We used to hang out together. And the thing about Harry was he'd wear a big yellow button all the time. I don't think I ever saw him without this yellow button that said, ask me. And Harry would go about, and he'd say, we'd go to a restaurant. And I was always hesitant to go to a restaurant with Harry because I was never sure if we were going to eat. You know, and I was all about, hey, we got an hour and a half. Let's go eat. And so Harry would walk in. The other thing I think evangelists have is they actually have a discernment for the ripe soul. And Harry would actually walk into a room and sort of look around. And somebody would come, would you like to sit over here? And he'd say, no, no, I'd like to sit over by that window. And I was like, I don't care. Just let's eat. And so we'd sit by the window because Harry actually spotted somebody, the spirit, the waitress or waiter in that area that he felt God called him towards. And so, you know, the waiter would come with the water, hello, how are you today? He start talking, and, uh, and then he'd you know, bring the drinks, you know, whatever we ordered for, for beverage. And again, if, by this time, Harry's kind of with the button. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and finally, if they came back a third time and hadn't asked yet, he'd say, aren't you going to ask me? And, he'd, uh, and they'd say, okay, I'll bite. And you couldn't help but love Harry. And so uh, they'd say, okay, what am I supposed to ask you? Ask me why I'm so happy. And then they would say, okay, why are you so happy? And he'd give them the gospel. And I saw him more than once over in the corner with the person before the meal was done praying. And the person's crying and, you know, God's coming into their lives. Uh, I used to say, Harry could bring a spiritual conversation about on an elevator between the first and fifth floor. That was his gift. And when he did, people probably who'd heard the gospel 20, 30 times in their life, something suddenly said, you know, this time it seems plausible. You've, have you known anybody like this? And that's the gift of evangelism in an operative sense. And, it, and I, again, I've seen it in brand new Christians. We're not talking about a five-fold ministry here. We're talking about just a set of gifts and impartation. And it, I think it even has something to do with personality. Most of the evangelists I know... I say, they could talk to a light post, and the light post would enjoy it. You know, I just, uh, I don't know. But anyway, I just spent five minutes telling you what we're not going to talk about. And uh, so what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about uh, what really, you know, is at the core of what I think fivefold ministry is, and that is equipping uh, bodies of Christ, uh, corporate bodies of Christ called local churches, primarily. And I, again, I, I have a great respect for parachurch ministry of all kinds and all that stuff. But I, I've come to believe that at the core of what the kingdom of God is trying to accomplish on earth, the importance of the local church in a healthy, dynamic, fully equipped, you know, every member ministry kind of way is still the center of what God's trying to do and always will be. And uh, so that's why, for me, that's become a, a central focus. All right, now... Um, What, you know, I I guess if you wanted to just put real clearly, we're talking about the challenge of creating Christian community that has the passion, the porousness, and a plan to reach lost people. Not just as each individual reaching lost people, but like a team, you know, like a football team has a plan to get from where it starts to the goal line that counts on everybody doing a part of the plan to get there. Not everybody has the same part in that. And, and, and some people will be inviters, and some people will be uh, cooks and feeders, and some people will do different parts. But everybody has a part. But again, passion has to be there for lost people. Um, everybody has to look at a person who walks in off the street with metal sticking out of their face, with blue hair, and obviously a life that is not lived for God, and go, ah, a child of God has come into our presence. And just this love goes out from every person. It must be porous in that we have to understand that churches, especially small churches, and let's face it, most churches in America, especially Pentecostal charismatic churches, are small. They are very hard to get into. And so we must work very hard to make these these fellowships Accessible. And when they come, we have to realize that between the everyday American life and what we enjoy as Christians, there is a huge leap, you know, in terms of a lot of customs. And we've got to say, it, it, it's it, and sadly, what a lot of times we've done is we said, well, that's their problem. You know, I actually heard one guy say a long time ago, he said, you know, the problem here is this the lost people in our community are just too lost to get saved. <laughs> and said uh, so they're just, they, you know, they, when they come to church, they hear the word and they, want, they, they just don't enter in. And I'm, and I'm like, whose responsibility is this? You know, and, and let me just say that whole thing about that making our communities porous and then leap into the conversation, well, I'm not going to make the gospel soft or I'm not going to compromise the word. That's a ridiculous conversation. Isn't it? it? Because, I mean, the word of God is so beautiful and winsome. And if, if we live out who Jesus is towards people, then what, what should happen is that it should be the sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes who are most drawn to the community of saints because it's the one place they can find acceptance and love. And and once they're loved and you start telling them about a God that loves them even more than you do, that is a, I can't think of anything in these broken hearts and these broken lives that would be more winsome. And desirable for them to meet this God. That's not compromising the gospel. That's living the gospel. So anyway, don't ever say that to me because that'll get another lecture. But uh, but we've haven't you heard Charismatics, Pentecostals, and hardline evangelicals say that about becoming porous? What I call becoming a porous, easy to access community. I've heard that over and over again. It's not true. All right, for me, 1985-86 was a very important time. I'm a, I'm a. If you, if you ever heard my testimony, I'm a, a kid who grew up in the church. I became a hardline agnostic persecutor of Christians when I went to college for about a year, and then I met Jesus in a revival at a Bible camp where I was a counselor. Okay, it was a good job. I was a lifeguard. You get to hang out by the pool with chicks, you know. So I ended up uh, having a powerful encounter with God in the midst of a true revival. And um, I thought that's what Christianity was always going to be like. I was disappointed later. But uh, anyway, it was, it was powerful. And uh, then I lived for 15 years in the charismatic renewal in, uh, in a denominational context. And then in 1985-86, God asked me a question. He says, why do you reach so few lost people in your churches? which was true. I had to say, we, we were good at drawing dissatisfied Christians from other denominations who wanted more. We were very good at that. But we were not good at touching the lost in our communities who were, had no contact with God. And I started to sense the heart of God for those people. And um, it was, uh, in fact, there was a prophetic word he gave me Where it was really a strong rebuke. He said, Let me tell you, he said, Well, let me tell you what's wrong. He says, I gave you the gifts of the Spirit as tools for evangelism, and you changed them into toys, and you locked yourselves in your churches that have become playpins for immature Christians to bless each other. He seemed upset about this. (laughs) And uh, it it really started a a several-year transition for me where I talk about getting out of the box. I just had to say everything I've been taught. And and I finally had to come to this confession. I had to say to Jesus one day, Jesus, you know, the problem really here is I don't like lost people. I really dislike them. They're irritating. And, and And I realized that that was probably a problem between him and me because he seemed to really love them. And I remember and I remember just falling under the deep conviction that somehow I had to change and and it wasn't a change that could be surfacey or verbal it had to be heart because people know when you love them and, and accept them. And and I'm, it really it, it took 7 years. I prayed for 7 years. Uh, That God would change my heart and it slowly I started to think different and you know the renewing of the mind and all that but what really alerted me that something had happened was I was at the state fair the Minnesota State Fair and how many of you have ever been to the Minnesota State Fair most of you you a lot of you have but anyway it it, it, I have a theory that there is a drawer that people put spandex in (laughs) of colors that are not normally worn by humans And then they put them on and go to the state fair. So it's really fun to go to the state fair because it is wild. And and, and I I used to love to sit and just laugh at people, You know, sit on a bench and laugh at people as they went by. One day I was sitting on a bench at the state fair laughing, and all of a sudden the Spirit of the Lord just came over me, and I started to see them the way he saw them. And I knew that he had done something in my heart that was important for what I needed to become. Throughout this period of my life, in the you know, mid-'80s to the, into the 90s, you know, the Lord had us ended up planting a church out in Schenectady, New York. And uh, the, uh, there was really a laboratory. We did that for about six years. God moved us back here um, and uh, started really working with churches about this whole issue of how to become porous and effective in reaching lost people And in the midst of that, God had me at a church down in Hastings uh, that was a Word of Faith church and very ingrown, very much existed for those who were present. And the decisions and the culture reflected their preferences. And I was working with him as a consultant, ended up being on staff for a while, ended up the pastor left, Uh, it ended up not being a very nice departure after a year and a half of looking for a pastor, they asked me to apply. I ended up applying, didn't really want the job. I was going to plant another church, but God just did some miracles and ended up the church planning team joined the church. We changed the name, and we went into a mode of saying, this church is called to exist for those not yet present. And so we began to, to develop that, uh, and a, building on what I'd learned at the previous church, uh, and uh, that's, been, that's been exciting for the last few years. so just we, we probably started with about 180 adults when I took over as a senior pastor 14 years ago. We probably had about 700 now, we figure. But the growth of that, roughly, say, 500. Um, and, and it's about half conversion growth and half came from other places and other contexts. And uh, that's been exciting. It's very very exciting. By the way, uh, new Christians are the best people to work with in terms of teaching, and they believe everything you tell them. You know, which is a responsibility, but uh, but they're much easier to work with 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 tra- than transfers, who have preconceived notions of how things should be done. And uh, so anyway, that's that's what happened. Now, I'm going to take you through a model that uh, the Lord has kind of been working on in me for a long time. In fact. This is, I don't know what you said to the other guys, but when Jim and I talked, it was really this model that Jim really wanted to have shared here. And um, the the thing now that has me really focused is this last election. Um, this last election, for me, it was very disappointing. Obviously, I worked hard on the marriage amendment issue and, and a lot of other things, but um, I, I tell you, it. it If if, if clear vision and understanding of culture is helpful, this last election was very helpful. we had been suspecting, if you've been paying attention to, uh, you know, whether it's Barna or Pew or various other surveys, uh, some startling news was coming to us the last four years between the last election and this one. Church attendance plummeted by, I think it was 20% in America. Uh, it, it was uh, in, in various kinds of things were coming at us about young people and generational tur- turnover. Well, this last election proved to us we live in an entirely different place. We've passed a tipping point in this last four years, and it just came to the surface in this election. All four of the marriage initiatives were defeated. The first four that were ever defeated in America were defeated this election. Two states legalized the recreational use of marijuana, and uh, just a, a whole swing uh, in terms of, uh, I guess, you know, just politically, uh, an expression of what people wanted from their government was expressed that is very, very different from historic uh, American role of government. Okay? And that's, it's, just, it's quite startling when you sit back and look at what happened. Um, here's be a, a reason we need to stop and think about how are we going to have communities that permeate a culture that's in the state it's in, that's all around us. That's a really our subject. But here, here's what I would say. I said, first of all, we have to realize that now the dominant philosophic understanding, and I would even say religious understanding, is, called, is secular relativism in America. I know Islam is, is making a strong pitch, people talk about that a lot, but it's nothing compared to secular relativism in terms of a, and, and it is a new kind of secular relativism in this, in that really its religious core is scientific rationalism. In other words, science is what we get truth from. It used to be that there was kind of this live and let live between faith and you know religion and God and the discoveries of our but you you understand that over the last few years a strong strong anti-theism has been introduced in America now it is popular to criticize religion in I mean universities that's been true but it's crept beyond that and uh, you know people get persecuted now for saying they are I, I'm just I'm telling my people I said you've got to get more cheerful when you're persecuted I mean, we still, when people think bad of us or frown at us or say, you stuff, you believe that stuff, we feel bad. We've got to get over feeling bad. We've got to say, yeah, I do. Can I tell you why? You know? And also, can I pray for your sick daughter? You know, and, uh, and, you know, and give them a little grief. You know, you believe in that stuff? Yeah. Anyway, we've got to get more cheerful when we're persecuted. And we just got to get better. Let's face it, Christianity's always done better from a minority position because light shines brighter in dark places, and the contrast is greater. That one of the great difficulties we've had in this country is that we've had a culture that's permeated with Judeo-Christian beliefs, but is not any longer spiritually connected to God, and it's confusing. And we've got a lot of churches that are no longer true Orthodox Christian churches. They still have a cross on the front and sing hymns. But you go into them, they won't tell you the resurrection is real. They won't tell It's confusing. And now I think things are going to get clearer in terms of who believes and knows God. And so, you know, in a really strange and perverted way, I'm encouraged. Okay, and what's the greatest doctrine today in America? Tolerance. And uh, well, I tell you, even my born-again, I think they're born-again, you know, 20-year-olds, they still can't ever bring themselves to say somebody else is wrong. It's just a disease, man, you know, tolerance. It's been so, you know, pushed into you. And, you know, and I, the, the ability to come to a conclusion has been lost. All right, so this makes this question. How do we present the gospel in a credible way? I like the definition of this word credible. It says, that which can be believed is worthy of trust. Synonym, plausible. Somebody actually says, here's, here's what we believe in our, our testimony of our relationship to the we'll living Christ. And they go, that seems plausible. Well, this is hard. Okay, and I think we've got to step back, if you haven't done this already, and we've got to realize how compared to everything in the scientific rationalism of our day that's been pumped into our kids for generations, the fact that what we're saying, sometimes I like to say it this way, I am going to go out into the world and tell everybody that a 2,000-year-old Jewish dead guy is my best friend. That's what we're saying, isn't it? in their view a 2000-year-old Jewish dead guy is your best friend and you talk to him <laughs> and you talk back and you put everything you have on obeying him and living for him it just doesn't seem plausible from that cultural you know venue that they're coming from and uh, but here what we have to you know just at a core level, sometimes you look at 2,000 years of church history and you think about the job that the first disciples had in convincing the Roman culture that Jesus Christ, this Jewish dude, was the only true God and, in fact, was their creator. And that if they, how did they do it? I think that was a good challenge. And I, I just, you know, I guess we have to start with this assumption that says, God has worked it out so that the gospel can permeate any culture if it's done the way he intended. All right, so that's that's kind of our, our premise here. Um, okay, there's one other issue in, in this I want to talk about. And, and here we go to your little chart that I gave you, and this is our the model. I like models. I like them because you can play with them, they're flexible, um, you can experiment with a model, and uh, I want to just you know, talk about a healthy community, and if anything, let me just have you do one change. You know on your model, your, uh, your triangle, you know where it says a healthy community in the middle? If, if I, was, I was after there, a community full of grace would be what I would consider a healthy community. Cross out underneath, where there are three uh, bullet points, love, truth. Cross out grace, that's a typo, and put power. Okay, that'll, that'll help us just get started here. Now, the, um, I believe that God has worked it so that if we, if we live and do the gospel correctly in a culture, it will have credibility in any context that you can ever think of. And in other words, people will stop and look at us and look at what we're saying and presenting about Jesus Christ, and they will go, maybe I should check that out. Because one of the things we have to remember is we're not here to impose Christianity. In fact, we are not allowed to impose Christianity. Christianity is a proposal, an invitation. It is not an imposition. Now Islam, the way it's been done in a lot of history, is an imposition. Either believe it and follow us or or else and again, here we don't really buy that, but you go into a lot of the rest of the world, you know go to Pakistan and ask somebody if that's true in a lot of the other countries of the world and, uh, and let's face it, if if, we're, if people would honest, which they usually aren't about uh, even this secular humanistic scientific rationalism, if you talk to any of your college students and found out the imposition of that position on them when they go to college today, I mean, people are being thrown out of programs for not believing it and believing Christian doctrine. It is a highly manipulative, imposing kind of uh, uh, doctrine that's being forced on our students. And we're left in this position where we're forbidden to impose the faith. Uh, I think we've tried. I think we've threatened, shamed, guilted, all of that, which is counterproductive. Uh, But all we can do is live a life that's so winsome that people finally ask, what's different about you? Why is your life of a qualitative measure different and better than mine? And your family, more happy. And then we get to uh, explain the gospel and we get to provide proof that Jesus is alive or he does that through us. That's 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 understanding the credibility of the God plan of presenting the gospel. Okay, so let's break that down. Um, first of all, let me let me say this: I'm gonna I'm gonna make some broad generalities, which are not always true, but are so true in so many cases that I think we can, uh, I think we need to deal with them. I think that again, I'm just gonna talk about American or North American Christianity. One of the problems with this credibility triangle is we've actually decided to specialize um, in, in some of the things that make Christianity credible. Let me, let me be broad in general. I'm gonna do, let's just take good old non-charismatic evangelicalism and the Baptist cessationist approach to, to Christianity. Its strong emphasis has been on we preach the word we preach a strong word. We preach a true word. It's all about the word. We're going to preach the gospel with power. Right? right. Even just the look in my face. Doesn't that sound like good? Because, you know. And if the Holy Spirit's come at all, He's come to convict you of sin and of righteousness and a coming judgment. Okay? And the attitude a lot of times I've found is, and if that offends you, then... Tough. That's your problem. Okay. Now, uh, and I've known people like that, and you have too. Now let's talk about mainline churches. Uh, Our organization exists because a bunch of mainline charismatics left the mainline church back in the 80s because they were departing from a doctrine of scripture and teaching the word. And now we've seen that 30 years later come full circle. I've got an article in here in which The ELCA, when they addressed the marriage issue, said, we believe that that was just a cultural prohibition against homosexual and that God is still speaking and basically evolving today. And they put it in print as an official statement. And, uh, okay, so pretty much they jettisoned the word. They won't teach against maybe the, the Holy Spirit, but let's face it, he disappeared 20 years ago or 40 years ago for most mainline, a lot of mainline churches. You know, I, I love the confession of a Chinese missionary convert who said, uh, uh, "You know, Heavenly Father, very good. Son, very good. Holy bird, no understand. <laughs> and uh, if you go into most uh, you know, mainline churches, they just don't talk about the reality and the presence of God in, in the Holy Spirit. But you know what they've they, they, so they don't have the power and they don't have the word really clear anymore. So what are they left with? Social service and care. And and basically, you know, so they're doing food pantries and they're doing, and they're doing wonderful work in these areas. And you know, they build most of the hospitals. And in back in the day when they were still doing everything, and uh, but they're still doing that. And and so you've got this understanding. By the way. You, Talk about credibility. If if the news media wants to go talk to a credible Christian, who do they go fi- to find? Mainline church leaders. Because the word people are too legalistic. The charismatic pentecostals are too weird to fit into this uh, new cultural understanding of reasonable stuff and uh, so they go talk to these people because they are doing nice things and and the world's basic understanding of Jesus is he was a nice guy who liked and cared for people. So an expression of social action represents that doesn't it? Okay but they've kind of moved more and more to social action and uh, finally you've got us Charismatics Pentecostals people who were touched by the Holy Spirit Uh, sometime in the last century between January 1st 2001 and uh, and the end yeah, 1901, thank you. And uh, you've got these movements. And uh, what, a lot of times what we've done is we've really gone back to this thing of the the power, the gifts, the evidence of you know, the manifestation. And, and because we rediscovered it, that's what we've really projected. Uh, and uh, a lot of times it's almost come across, and I think we know this, it's, it's kind of come across to the rest of the church as... We got God and you don't. And there's a certain amount of arrogance that they've, they've sensed about that issue. And uh, so, But do you see how we've specialized? By the way, how do you get into a box since we're talking about how to get out of a box? This is a very important question. If you don't understand how you get into these boxes, it doesn't matter how many times you crawl out, you're going to live most of your life in boxes. We get into boxes because something seems to work when nothing else is, when we're frustrated. And we go to a conference, or we try something, and it produces a little bit of fruit. And so if we, it produces a little fruit, we work it. And then what happens is we become familiar and good at that. And we have a tremendous prejudice towards what we're comfortable and good at. And even if it stops working, Seriously, that's how we get into boxes. And then we start to defend it against why it quit working. Because, because the pagans are too darn paganistic to be saved. You know, we've got a hybrid kind of unbeliever around us. It's just resistant to the gospel. Or the one I love is, is uh, you know witches. I've run into about 20 towns that are the witch capital of the world. It's just too much. Which, to, which, to which I say, you know, we just sang about the name of Jesus. Why didn't you get rid of those, those witches and the demons? Or uh, Indian mounds was another big one for a while. That there's somehow a curse because we, did, we really did bad things and we got cursed and now we're under. But do you understand how silly all that is? That we keep, because we start, why the thing in our box that we have gone prejudiced towards doesn't work anymore? Then we just find reasons to explain why it doesn't work and keep doing it. Anyway. All right. So here's, here's the issue. We've got three kinds of kind of general broad manifestations of the church, and we've decided to specialize and we're not authorized to specialize in the word. I, I put them into an alliteration, of course, because it's a spiritual gift that we all have. So that evangelical Baptist kind of movements have chosen the word as their central theme. The mainline churches have chosen the works, the works of Christ. And we've chosen the wonders. We're not authorized to choose between them. They are all essential to the credibility of the gospel. And they're, they're essential in that they work in a, a way together that is laid out to us. We, they don't just, you can't just throw them at people in, in different ways. Um, so I want to just, uh, first of all, let's repent of specializing where we're not authorized. And here's a word, and, and we'll close with this and then take a little break, and then we'll come back and tackle the triangle. But this is something the Lord said to me uh, uh, during this whole process when we were thinking through this. He said, I am truth, the word. I am love, uh, this caring for people in their practical needs. And I am power. Isn't that, doesn't the Bible say that? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, God is love and he is power. Don't leave Jerusalem until the dynamos, the power has come upon you. And uh, basically, Jesus is saying, if you leave the Jerusalem with the truth and the love, but don't have the power, you're going to misrepresent me. See, because the world ends up seeing, if we, if we choose between them, uh, I think, you know, for the evangelical uh, and uh, Baptist guy who just chooses the word, the world ends up seeing a third dimension, one third of God. But apart from the love and the power, he is remote and he is tough. He's not that loving. He's kind of judgmental. And isn't there a lot of legalism in those movements historically? If you take just the the mercy and the kindness and the social service, God is confusing in terms of how you get saved, and he becomes very temporal. You'd start to de-emphasize the eternal in salvation, and you start to get very temporal, very down here on earth is the important stuff. And he's also untouchable and remote again. You know, I grew up in one of these churches. Never did anybody who was in trouble or in pain or in problem did they ever get on their knees and pray and ask God to help because nobody ever told them he was imminent. And powerful, and still answered prayer. Okay, and then for us, to be honest, is that we get we get con, uh, accused, rightfully so, of being a little weird because we emphasize the supernatural in a in a culture that is highly suspect of the supernatural. It doesn't understand it, and it, it doesn't differentiate. Now it's intrigued with it, and more and more intrigued with it, with vampires and uh, witches, and and you know, good witches and nice witches and educated witches, and you know, no, seriously. But they're confused. But to actually do it and live in it, and experience it and pursue it, that's weird and spooky. Alright. I'm just saying, and uh, I think a lot of it's because we haven't done the other three. So anyway, let's take a break, and uh, we'll come back and let's just t- t- uh, tackle the, the triangle. What till we uh, ten minute break, and uh, we'll come back. All right,
0: we're ready to roll, part two.
1: All right. What I'm going to do is, is try to go quickly through this credibility triangle model, and then basically open up uh, just a discussion of this because it's you know, hopefully going to be clear. But um, if you just look, you have the the model in your your packet, and um, it's also up here. But it's good you have it in your packet because this is not readable. But uh, from a, from the distance, the um, the first thing I want to do is let's just talk about the sides of the triangle. The cool thing about a triangle is it's the only uh, shape where all parts touch all other parts. And the neat thing about this triangle is God can start any place he wants on this triangle. I mean, and I, I'm a testimony actually, you know, um, see if I can get this to work right. If I, if I, whoops, I went to, okay, I grew up in a church that really did preach good doctrine in the word. So I knew the gospel when I rejected Christ. And, uh, you know, and I thought Christians were pretty nice people, but I didn't think they were any nicer than anybody else. But I actually got saved because I went to a place and uh, a a revival broke out and I saw miracles that I had no explanation for. It was really signs and wonders that led me to Christ or led me over the the edge. There are other people who, uh, you know, God may start here. He may touch them because you go out and feed their family and they're destitute. And that love, nobody else would love them that way. And that's how they come into the, the sphere of your community. And then they hear the gospel. You know, people, uh, you know, start to understand the gospel. This is the old mission uh, strategy is you have to explain the gospel after you've, you you express love, then you explain the gospel. And uh, they make a personal application, and uh, you know, uh, wonders follow. Hopefully, you know, that uh, give give uh, credibility. But so anyway, God can use this triangle any place. I'm not proposing that there is a step by step thing. I'm just saying we need all three, and that we most of us weren't raised in contexts where we're very good at all three and haven't thought through how all three become imparted to every member of our community so that the whole church is functional in all three. That is a really dynamic community. Okay, so let's break it down a little bit. Let's take the word first. And uh, again, look at your screen unless you have x-ray vision. Um, This is more complex than we've thought about it. And uh, I'm sorry about that, but uh, it is. Sometimes we oversimplify things. What is it? Who is it that said this great quote? I think it was Albert Einstein. He said, make everything as simple as possible, but no simpler. (laughs) It is a great word. Because if you oversimplify something, it doesn't work. Okay. Now, what are we called to do? We're called to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. We all know that, the way of salvation. We're taught to teach the scriptures. Uh, isn't that what Jesus said? Uh, go and make disciples and then teach them everything I've commanded you. That's how I'm still, that one's making my brain smoke. Teach them everything I've commanded you. Give our. We're called to give testimony uh, of God's activity. We all know how powerful being, giving testimony is. And that really is the definition of witnessing. And we're called to advocate for God's plan in all natural and social spheres. This is the realm of apologetics, or giving a defense of the gospel. Now, I've just got some scripture here, and I want to just go through this to talk about this whole issue of declaring the truth of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he says, uh, Paul says, and Now I make known to you, brother, in the gospel, which, uh, which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand. He, you know, he's famous... I'm not ashamed of this gospel, this way of salvation, to explain why the death of Jesus Christ covered the sins of the world and how you come into relationship with him uh, by repenting and believing on the name and uh, receiving him as Lord and the Holy Spirit comes and Just that whole issue of how does that all work that hopefully people will come to. Uh, 2 Timothy 4. Paul talking to Timothy, he says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Paul could really ratchet up a thing, couldn't he? Uh, he says, now you preach the word. Now he's talking about, uh, you know, it, it, he didn't have a Bible. Sometimes we got to remind ourselves of this. You, you preach this word, the teaching of Christ, preach about how you come to be part of the kingdom through Christ, and, uh, and, and also, I think, in there, we've got to remember that Jesus spent a good deal of the 40 days between his resurrection reinterpreting the Old Testament in a messianic context. It says he, he explained to them from uh, the books of Moses and, and the prophets and Psalms, he explained to them how that all pointed to him, the Messiah. So they had a whole new interpretation of the old uh, Jewish texts that they also were, were bringing to these people. Preach the word, be, in, in, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and great patience and instructions. Let me, let me mess with you just for a minute. I don't mean to be mean, but uh, again, as charismatic Pentecostals, one of the things we're still doing in terms of our box and cranking something that used to work is we still are doing things that worked in revival times that don't work today because in season and out of season. You know, and again, I just, this is a question I'm going to ask God, and I don't mean it in disrespect. It's, God, why didn't you do more of that revival thing? It was so much easier. You know, I, I remember when I was at Bible camp, we, like I said, we had a true revival where the spirit was so profoundly hovering in the place that the first day, I would I remember sitting down with a bunch of Iowa farm boys. Uh, these guys were not overly spiritual, and, uh, you know, and they'd grown up in denominational church contexts, and, which a lot of times is an immunization against the gospel. And, uh, and they were sitting there. They didn't have anything particularly on their minds. That was obvious. And, uh, and I remember reading John 10 to them. I just read the text. I'm the good shepherd, the good shepherd. And I'm looking at the text, and all of a sudden I hear sniffling. And the spirit fell reading the text on the entire table of about 12 young men, and they were all weeping. They didn't know why. I just looked up at them. I said, you know, guys, this is all true. Jesus is alive. You're feeling his presence now. Would, would any of you like to ask him to become your Lord right now? Ask him into your heart. They all raised their hand. They got saved the first morning in the first 15 minutes. I like that, by the way. <laughs> Anybody vote for that? <laughs> now, this is a lot harder, what we're talking about, because it's not a revival. We're not in revival right now. I'm praying for it, but you know what bugs me? It's people who spend all their time praying for revival and not working out of season. If you figure out how to do the kingdom work out of season, when revival comes, man, yeah, game on. It's pretty pretty fun. All right. Now, uh, Acts 2.32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all, this is important, witnesses of that fact. What is a witness? It's a courtroom analogy. We saw this, therefore we can give testimony. In court, one of the problems is, you know, there's two kinds of testimony, basically expert testimony and firsthand witness testimony, where I saw something. You don't get to say my brothers, sisters, cousins, hairdresser, Told me, you know, you don't get to say that; they'll throw it right out. It's a second-hand, second-hand testimony, Your Honor. It's, it's irrelevant. Uh, so it's got to be something you've actually experienced, and that's what Jesus was calling us to. Uh, you, we are witnesses of these things: the crucifixion, and the resurrection, the ascension. This is Peter talking, and so is, is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given us uh, to those who obey Him. Uh, that's an interesting statement. The Holy Spirit was a witness. I, I believe that. Okay, Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made, nature, so that men are without excuse. This is, Paul here is talking about the realm of apologetics, that you can look at the systems of the world, and if we're intelligent and informed and educated, we can say God's nature is reflected in this. And uh, you know we we have a better explanation for creation than the evolutionists do. But I tell you, a lot of our people are not prepared to answer questions about science, and they just shut up and they get intimidated and they quit representing Christ when they're asked. Why? Because we haven't trained them. We haven't thought it was important to train them in apologetics. Okay, what I put over here is is, is and again, God can come into here any place he wants in a sovereign way and change a life, okay? So I'm not saying this is a, a recipe for saving a soul, you know, and if you depart from it, you'll have a fallen souffle or something, you know. But but this is basically, I think, every Christian needs in this area of the word to go way beyond knowing John 3.16 and a couple other Bible verses, to know the word is to understand a couple of things. One is that we start by living a winsome life. The word incarnate. That we should actually have joy. That we should actually have peace. That we should have the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, just start right that and look at the, out at your congregation someday. Not so much. You know but you know, this is just important. And the other thing is that that winsome life is lived in a way that it relates to other people, non-Christians, in a friendship mode. This concept of friendship is so important. Uh, what is it, Luke 15, where he prepares the... Uh, is it Luke 10? I forget. You know, he, he prepares the 70 to go out. Luke 10. That is a great example of what Jesus was saying here. He says, go out and uh, find this man of peace, or this person... And, I don't want to even talk about what I think that means, but I wish he had been more explicit about how to recommend, recognize a man of peace. But anyway, he said there's somebody who's going to be there that will receive you into this community you're going to, and if there isn't that person, move on, find to where there is. But he says once you do, basically become the man's friend and live there and befriend the people and love and serve them. You know, we should be the people who are just – get up and go and serve. You know, how many of your people are spending lots of time just in their workplaces being the guy you go to if you've got a problem, if you got a need? Uh, the woman you go to at school to help you. you. know, Are we really that servant-oriented? But here is the thing. is we're called over and over again. He said, I want you to be my witnesses. The problem with being a witness is you've got to have some experience with God. A lot of our people don't. A lot of people who go to church have never experienced God. See, one of our problems is we've been, and this is a pastor problem that we share. We do more convincing people that they are saved than processing a conversion. And that's a danger that we all fall into. And I, I quit doing it a few years ago. I just Now I just gently, I just keep saying, tell me when you met Jesus. Well, I and they can't answer that. Well, I've always kind of been going to church. I always kind of believed. I don't no, no, I didn't ask you that. I said, "Tell me when you met Jesus." I said, "You'd know when you met me, right?" Well, he's even more memorable than me. So, uh, if you've met him, you'd remember it. But believe me. Okay, and isn't what conversion is yeah. to come into a relationship with Christ by the Holy Spirit? We've done more convincing people that they are saved by praying prayers with them and telling them yeah I know it doesn't feel like it but you know put your faith before your feelings and and I, again I understand all that and I don't want to get emotional but am I cheating them if I don't keep saying keep seeking the Lord keep seeking the Lord until you know you've met him and let's not talk about your salvation your heart's in the right place I don't you know I'm not worried about that but keep seeking the Lord until you've met him. And I find people want to meet him. They, they're they tired of this iffiness in their relationship to God. And I, I said the nice thing that we can assure them of is that he says, if you seek me with all your heart, you, I will be found by you. He wants to know you and you to know him more than you want to know him. Isn't that what we believe? Anyway, that's another kind of subject, but... If they don't have this, they don't have testimony. I also tell them, go on a missions trip. Something's going to happen. And you'll come back and you'll have a story to tell. It's these stories of our firsthand experience with the living God. that he That's what he commissioned us to go tell the world about. We're out there teaching doctrine and telling people the four spiritual laws. When all he told us to do was go tell the stories of your experiences with me. Isn't it true, we all know this, that testimony is the most credible kind of witness there is, right? We all know. We've all said it, you know, you can't argue with testimony. Well, that's what he told us to do. You are my witnesses. Will you be my witnesses? Go, be my witnesses. That's what he told us to do. I don't think most of our Christian people understand that that's actually what he told us to do. And they're very intimidated because they're not theologians and a lot of them don't have the gift of evangelism, and they don't like rejection. Does this make sense? So anyway, I've, I've been really, really emphasizing this. Get a story. Get a story. Pray over everything in your life. Eventually, God's going to do something, and then you'll have a story. Fulfill my part. Anyway, he always he's like, it's hard to win an argument with him. I think we need to equip people to intelligently defend the faith and invite people. And then, you know, what I mean by this is there's so much intellectualism that you are going to, in your process of witnessing, people go, What about the dinosaurs? Well, better have an answer about the dinosaurs. Uh, What about this? What about that? What about, you know? And uh, we need, isn't it in the Bible? We're, We're. Paul tells people that we need to be defend the faith. It is. He, he said that's part of the equipping of the, the disciple. So uh, we got to work on this and then invite people into the kingdom of Christ. Again, it's a proposal. There's no pressure with the gospel. Just God loves you as much as he loves me. Jesus died for you just as much as he died for you. If you want to, you can have this relationship with God too. It's wonderful. I'll, I'll bear witness. And then we get have to explain how that's when we get down to the basic gospels the basic gospel and uh, you know so all these things. if if we had if we had 3 400 people who had a swiss army knife approach they could do all these things and they just walk out into the world and they just looking who to meet who who is it that's a skeptic well let me tell you what jesus did i got an x-ray the before the after explain that um, they got questions about this or that. Well, I've, I can, let's talk about that. Or I can give you a book, at least. I know I to give you a book to talk about that and work through that. And, and this is equipping. You see, in any sports team, what do you do in training camp? You work on the fundamentals. You work on blocking and tackling, and you get yourself into shape. And then you go out in the game. You don't think about those things. There's so much a part of you. These are the things about the word of God. When we talk about presenting the word, these are the fundamentals that I should just have in my pocket, like a Swiss Army knife. I can pull anyone out anytime I need it, in the instance I am. That's our job as pastors, is to do this. Um, Just one of the things, when I started to realize that a lot of our people were so quiet, they weren't good witnesses. Not because their hearts weren't right, but because they just so often felt embarrassed because they were unequipped to deal with situations. Um, you know, one thing, obviously, I'm sure you do too. We just teach the Bible. I, I've become converted, is I am now a, uh, you know, verse-by-verse verse guy now. Um, go through a whole book. The nice thing is you, you, you don't have to avoid anything you know, I did 1 Corinthians and got to the point about sexual immorality. You know, three chapters, juicy. Mm. <laughs> we, had a, we had a marriage revival. We had seven couples living together. When they heard just the scriptures being taught, came up and said, we're, we're living outside of God's will and asked to be married. And then at the weddings, two more, pe- two more couples got convicted. So then we had a nine-couple marriage revival. And you know what was really cool was they, they in two instances, the guys came up crying, saying, God's convicted me. I'm, I'm living outside his will. I love that. I love to see guys cry. <laughs> anyway. Um, but, again, witnessing has got to be uh, explained. That well, That's where we start in most cases is just telling our God stories. And then the whole area of apologetics. I know in our church... One of the things, did you heard of the Truth Project? Yes. Dale Tackett uh, came out of a focus on the family. We did that as a whole congregation about four years ago. Just shut down everything else, put everybody in small groups, and went through the Truth Project. It was a little heady for a lot of our folks. I mean, they didn't know how to spell the word anthropology, you know. And Dale talks about those sort of things. But, boy, when you got done, you know what the people said? I feel much more confident defending the faith. We have better answers than those other people do about all these issues of life. Most of them had never thought about the theology of being in the workplace, that God taught us how to be good employees and good employers. Well, we went through that. This is an important theological concept, that most Christians should be the most sought-after employees on the planet because we know how honest be honest and how to work for our boss's goals and how to set limits that are you know, ethical limits and things like that. Uh, most, most of those people, we live in a dualism now where my job and my school is so separated from my spirituality and my church presence. And, you know, I, I'm sorry. I know you're not to blame, but I had to look at myself and I said, I'm to blame for that because I've never taught on how to be a good employee. I've never developed the apologetic Of the workplace okay so that's the word it's bigger but again once you've you've talked about all this stuff uh your people start to feel confident in sharing what it means to be a follower of christ um the second thing is works and this goes to the uh, whole issue of love that the world understands that um that jesus was a nice guy who liked people and that if we're going to represent him, we have to do this. And, and here, here is where I had to admit, I was terrible at this. I grew up in a, in a context, spiritually, where we just didn't think about it. We thought that's social gospel. And we discredited it. And we basically handed it to the mainline churches who, suddenly, I noticed the world saw as much more credible witness than we, we were. Okay, so uh, let me just go through that quick. This is a demonstration of the love of God, whereas the word is a declaration of the truth of God, this is a demonstration of the love of God, uh, because God cares for and values all people. The imagio Deo, God's image is in every human, and therefore Christians take care of people. Uh, we are called to be the body of Christ that incarnates his grace, mercy, and love to the world in which we live. It is often the activity of Christ in acts of selfless kindness that opens the door to sharing the gospel. Uh, we now have a food uh, distribution ministry that feeds about 120 families. On the second Saturday every month, we give them two weeks of food uh, for about. We ask them to give $20, and we probably give them $200 worth of food for that, and meat and vegetables and fruit, not just canned stuff, but all kinds of really good food. And uh, boy, I tell you, the amazing number of people that have been open to the gospel. Just because you know we're there, and they come to the church, and they, they get. And also, we pray for them in the hallway. uh, Ask them if they have any prayer needs. Um, It's been wonderful. Uh, James one twenty seven. We're familiar with this religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Notice uh, there's what I want to call or name a consequential understanding in the New Testament of of service they understood that if you had the spirit of Christ you could not help looking around and just loving people and meeting their needs we know if you've ever read Chuck Colson's excellent book uh, the church um, you know he talks about in the early Roman uh, exercise of the church penetrating the Roman culture what was it that made people stop and look at these people Two basic big things was, one is when the uh, cities would regularly have uh, plagues, uh, all the people who could afford it would just move out of town and go to their country estates to avoid being, getting sick. But the Christians stayed and really started, in a sense, the first hospitals. And many of the Christians died taking care of the sick people, the poor people. And pe- people just looked at them and go, who are these people? And we have letters, actually, from the day where people are going, these crazy Christ people, he said, they, they're, they're staying and, and caring for the sick people. And the other one, of course, he talks about the fact that the, the Christians actually went out on the rivers and uh, because of all the infanticide, you know, people like to make babies because they were sexually crazy, uh, but they didn't like to keep and raise them. And so many of the babies were thrown into the river to drown. And the Christians would actually go out and net them in and take them home and raise them as their own children. People couldn't believe this. And again, what is it? It's an expression of our Christian understanding that every human being is made in the image of God and therefore has value. Well, people didn't understand where did this kind of sacrificial service and love come from? And uh, it, it brought about a hook that drew many of them to say, what is it? And then again, valuing women as opposed to seeing them as property. Uh, many of the first converts were women for that reason because they had such a much higher status in the church, and the loving kindness and respect that they were shown there brought them in. Now, you know where this really gets plain is in, when we hear Jesus teaching in, at the end of Matthew, Matthew 25, about the great white throne judgment. And he, you know, he does the thing where he separates the sheep and the goats, and then he says to the sheep, you know, when I was thirsty, you, know, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they're perplexed. When did we do all these things? And he says, If you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Notice that there is, in Jesus' eyes, a consequential obedience. This is something I think we've missed when we start talking about sanctification. Um, is that this is consequential means if I tell you I've been in, if I'm standing next to a swimming pool and say, I just went swimming. And you look me up and down and go, but you're not wet. See, wetness is a consequence of swimming. Well, they understood that service and love to strangers, that forgiving your enemies as well as your friends who might mistreat you, was actually consequential. It didn't mean we didn't struggle with it sometimes. That's why John in 1 John says, you cannot say you love God and hate your brother see I don 't know the language kind of bothers us because we say well if a really unsanctified person in fact hating your brother in church is pretty common in fact we've institutionalized it well they would they would come into our churches and they go you know a lot of your people aren't converted because you cannot say you love God and and freely opening without anything bothering your conscience, you can't do that and hate your brother. They'd say there's something wrong here with the spiritual condition. Does that make sense? Okay, so this service is not something we do as a um, strategy. If I go out and be nice to people, they'll think nice things about me and come to church. The Bible tells it it's a absolute consequential strategy uh, Automism of being saved, of having Christ in you. And then I had to ask myself, what's wrong with me? Because I knew I'd met Jesus, and I knew the Holy Spirit dwelt in me, and I ignored this part of my Christian call, and my church reflected it. And so we went back and said, we're going to become involved in our culture around us, in feeding people, and clothing people, and we created a ministry called Love in Action, and we said, some of you, here. Do you want a little benefit of this is I found out that there were people that were gifted by the Holy Spirit to do this ministry, but because we didn't in, uh, institutionalize it and, and recognize it, they were frustrated. A lot of them probably left and went where they could use their gifts, leaving us a deficit of this ministry. As soon as we started doing this intentionally, those people started to come back and the body got more balanced and healthy. But, but you remember when I was talking about you know, that we chose one of the three? You know what the long-term impact of that is? You drive the people with the passion for the other two things out of your church and send them elsewhere. And pretty soon, you're just not neglecting that. You're deficited in it. Your body is twisted and imbalanced. And when you start doing all three, the body starts to rebalance itself because people with the compassion-serving gifts start to come back and find something to express those gifts in. And people with the supernatural gifts that are really coming out of their ears, if you let that happen, they'll come back and they'll start to do more and more of it. And people with teaching gifts to teach the word, they'll come back and they'll start to express their gift. It, it, it brings healthiness. Okay, last one is wonders. And this is to decree the power of God, to display his, his power. And it's not just that he's powerful. This is so important. It's that he is imminent. I, that's one of the reasons I, I forsook the faith. was They said, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then I read the book and found out what he used to do. And I figured, let me put those two things together. If that's what God's like and he's the same, but he's not doing it now, how do I know he ever did it? I was too logical for the gospel that was presented to me. But that's where much of our culture is. We train him to think logically, and then we present a confusing gospel. All right, so the decree. We're called to be a channel of God's power and destroy the works of the devil, aren't we? John 7, I love this. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him, and they said, when Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? And then John 10, Jesus answered the Pharisees, the doubters, I did, I did tell you that, basically, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, but you didn't believe me. Well, the miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. I always, I always love to challenge people who are not supernaturalists. Say, so if Jesus needed miracles to convince people, How are you doing without any? John 14, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. I'm going to send you the same Spirit that I'm working with, the Holy Spirit. That, I find that to be the most challenging verse in the New Testament that I should be doing the same in greater works, So I ignore it and just pass it by. Okay. <laughs> Mark 16. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat. This is that controversial verse at the end of Mark. He was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. And then the disciples went out. And what did they do? They went out and they did the word and the works. They serve people, they love people, and they preach the gospel. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. In other words, you do your part, I'll do mine. And I love, there's one other verse I found. This is really good. I love uh, Acts 14.3, which is a, another statement of this actually working in the ministry of the, of the apostles. Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium. Uh, Paul and Barnabas in Iconium... Uh, this is Acts 14.3. It says, So Paul and Barnabas spent a considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. I love that. For the Lord. Who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. So uh, if I could be so bold as to say, I believe his doing more signs and wonders is, in a sense is predicated on us faithfully doing witness and works. Does that make sense? I I think we all believe that, Uh, and I. That's why, finally, you know, I I tell people pray for anything that moves that looks sick. You know, we we have a. In fact, in our value statement, we have, it is our goal that every person in the harbor become naturally supernatural, and what I mean by that is that we got to get over the spookiness quotient of being a non-supernatural culture so that doing supernatural stuff and praying for miracles is as normal. I always use this phrase. I said, I want you to feel praying for the sick to be healed is as normal as filling your car with gas. I want the idea that you could receive a prophetic word from God on any given day as normal as going to the ATM and getting some money. So you all know how to do that. You do it without thinking. I said, we should be at that same place in terms of the use of the gifts. And not just a special stage-level group of leaders, but every Christian should have that kind of comfort level with the supernatural. That takes a lot of intentional training and, uh, in, in preaching and teaching. Again, that's a pastoral concern then. All right. Um, that's, that's the premise And uh, I want to just, I want to close with one story. Um, When I was preparing this, I got this word too. I I don't know, just throw it out. I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, Get over your juvenile identity. In other words, the identity you had of yourself because of the movement through which you came to Christ. We are all imprinted with an identity, and we tend to defend our first identity the identity of the organization or the church that we came to Christ through. And I felt like the Lord's saying to us, get over that juvenile identity. Be your own man and woman of God. Grow up. It's, it's like when you're a child in your father's house, you identify with everything he does. I always thought the gas station my dad went to was the only place to buy good gas. The bank my father, I thought, why are there other banks? My dad chose this bank. It must be the only good bank in town. Then I grew up and realized there were choices. And I had to forsake the identity of my father's house. You know, Does this make sense, what I'm saying? And, 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 and get out of the box that I was born into and see there's far, far, far more that God's doing in the kingdom. And I need to get some of it. I'll tell you, I,
2: oh, that would probably
1: be too controversial to say. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Greg Kokel. I don't know if anybody knows who Greg Kokel is. He is an apologist out in um, California. He runs a ministry called Stand to Reason. The best trainer of people giving a defense of the gospel, I know. Just gives him practical training. He's not a charismatic. In fact, he doesn't like the whole charismatic thing. But I've had him into the church. I'm going to really stand. I like Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels is the greatest trainer of leaders in this country today, in my opinion. And I, I, we do his seminar, and he trains our leaders to lead. By the way, he also, I, I believe, has the Holy Spirit. And, uh, in fact, I had him prophesy over me once at a conference. Uh, Don and I were looking, and we went up afterwards, which I very rarely do, and I just said, would you pray for us? We're trying to make a big decision. And he prayed a nice evangelical prayer. and I said well thank you and we started to walk away and he ran after us and grabbed us and said wait a second I think the Lord just sold me something and he shared with me there's a prejudice that we have against other movements that's unfounded and, and, and this is talk about getting out of the box God has done stuff in other movements that we need And if we don't get out of the box and go get it and learn from them, let let me tell you this last story. In grasping the triangle, there is healing for the body. I'll tell you this last story. I was driving to work on one of the first, the first week I took over at the harbor. And as I said, this church had been, uh, sadly, um, it had gone through some very difficult times and it also had a history of being absolutely cut off from the rest of the churches in our community. In fact, many of the, I think, other pastors and churches saw it almost as a cult because it had been so separatistic and arrogant in its spirituality. And so here I am, the new guy, and I've, today is the day when the ministerium is meeting in September or January it was for the first time. And I remember I was not really looking forward to this meeting that much because I'm driving there. I said, these people aren't going to be happy to see me. I was, you know, t- explaining. Do you ever explain things to God because he doesn't understand? I said, these people aren't going to be happy. I said, what am I supposed to say? Because you know what happens at pastor's meeting? They, everybody goes around introduces themselves. I said, one of them is going to look right at me and go, what kind of a church is that? And that's the look on their face. I said, I just know it. It's just going to happen. And, and the Holy Spirit said to me, I took, he said, I'll tell you. You tell them, you are an evangelical, spirit-filled, social action church. And I remember going, is that possible? That was my reaction. I don't think I've ever heard of one of those. And then I got really honest and I said, you know, Lord, we're not, we don't have any social action. I mean, we're just bad at that. And he, and he didn't say anything back, you know. Ugh, yeah, yeah. He didn't disagree with me, that was for sure. So anyway, I get to this meeting at noon and we're all sitting around munching our sandwiches out of our bound bags and Sure enough, the guy in charge goes, well, why don't we all introduce ourselves? There are some new people here. <laughs> and so everybody goes, I'm Jim Anderson from the harbor, or, uh, you know, from this church. It was named something different at that point. And, uh, and, and everybody did there. And sure enough, a guy from a big old mainline church crossed the table from me, looked at me and goes, can I ask you something? What kind of a church is that? Verbatim. <laughs> and everybody in the room kind of sits back and goes, and I said, thank you, Jesus, that you told me what to say. And I remember I said, well, I said, we're not there yet, but my goal is that we would become an evangelical, spirit-filled, social action church. And then just hearing myself say it, I said, but to be honest with you, in the social action area, we are really, really deficient. I said, we don't really know what we're doing. I said, we're, And then out of me came this statement. I said, we're going to have to learn how to do that from some of you who are so good at it. And, and this guy, the guy who asked me the question, he just melted. And he said back to me, he says, you know something, be honest with you, we're not very good at that spirit-filled stuff. <laughs> he says, we're going to have to learn that from you. And the atmosphere of the room absolutely shifted. And we had some, a couple of years um, that were really wonderful in terms of fellowship in that, in that group. So we got a couple minutes left. Um, anybody got a just kind of build on this, or your thoughts on some of this application-wise? Do you want to? I had a really couple good questions at the break. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that's the, That's the grace component, where, like I said, you know, for me, when you have a vision statement, and, and I'm a great believer in vision statements, value value statements, philosophy of ministry statements that you expose everybody to as they come. In other words, you don't get to decide how we're going to do church at the harbor. You come in and learn what we're called to do as a team, how we're called to do it philosophically, and then we ask you, do you feel God's calling you to join the team and do church this way? I don't want anybody coming in here and saying, well, I know how to do church my way and I like your children's ministry, so I'm going to come in here and screw everything up for you. Uh, we, don't, we don't like that so when they sign on and say we, I feel called to harbor they're signing on to our vision values and philosophy they're adopting those and we make that crystal clear and one of the things is that we are a safe our thing is we are a safe place of protection and provision where people can find um, uh, wholeness balance and destiny in Jesus Christ and we explain all that and uh, part of that is this whole commitment that we exist for those not yet present. And so when I ever go to a newcomer's class, I always ask you know, newcomers, how did you find the harbor? And they tell how they got there the first time. And I say, what did you experience? And I'm, what I'm doing is this is the f- first church I felt comfortable at in my whole life. I feel like you guys just took me where I was at. You know, And every time they, somebody says, I go you know, that's what That's what a vision statement is for, is so that you know when you win, is you know when you accomplish something. So it's, it was a safe place for you. Oh, yeah, I just everybody's just really been open and loved me since I came.
2: Yeah, I think,
0: I I think three, about um, just sharing your testimony. I think it demystifies so much of it. Yeah. If you can say, do you have a, have you interfaced with God on some level? Can you tell that story? and i think so much of it then that opens the door it demystifies the you know all of the uh, all the dynamics of what i'm supposed to know to witness to evangelize it's 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 really right at that level so thanks i just kind of heard yeah. that again and like it's just not that crazy you know to be able to do this
1: yeah it's so true
3: we've been talking about the three different relationships, even in terms of being a healthy Christian, of uh, in inwards relationships with the body of Christ, upward with God, and outward to the world. And we've talked about that in terms of a triangle, which I'll just put up there because we have it. And uh, <laughs> so thank you for using triangles. We feel that triangles are anointed because uh, there's three sides and the Trinity and all that. Anyway, but it feels like the this triangle that... So up, in, and out, we're really good at up, worship stuff, and in, church, fellowship. But this out portion is the one where we get stuck on how do we flesh out the great commandment, the great commission, and the great concern in every direction. And feels like this is the corner, the right-hand corner of out. This is what out looks like. It's using the word works and wonders in a balanced way to take the church out because we tend okay. to be pretty good at up and in. Right? So it's... Yeah.
1: That's good. That's
2: good. Run, Jim. Run. Uh, It's not really much. When you were sharing about the testimony, uh, really I saw something. That's the key for... God's kingdom. I can give a personal experience. Um, I was just to get new hired at Samaritan Purse. It was at 2008, I took my flight from Charlotte to Amsterdam. I sit closer to a wonderful, I didn't know in the plane, they always put you to somebody who doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm when I get hired, that people are saying, I have been here for many years, working with Samaritan Press 20 years, I never get a chance to meet um, Billy Graham, something like that. That what come to me when I was sitting in the plane, how we met, and we spent almost two hours, I say, thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity. He heard. He uh, look at me, who are you? I told him, Yes, I'm a man of God, and uh, I work for this ministry, and this and this. You know what he's told me? Why God can put a man like you closer to a person like me? I asked him why. He told him that I can't have a time to talk about Jesus because I'm leaving my home to go to kill myself. Because my wife took all my children away. And she accused me for so and so. Now I, dear, doesn't have life, so I decide to leave America to go to somewhere in Europe to take drug and to kill ma, myself. I told him, God loves you, and he care about your family more than yourself. For him, he said that, I, how come I can hear about Jesus, and I've been troubling everybody I'm talking to is telling me to go to get legal, legal counsel, legal advice, legal this, so I can resolve my problem in my, in my family. But I just understand that if I get Jesus' peace in my heart, it will resolve uh, everything. That's, I want to say that the testimony doesn't need to take the Bible, doesn't, but the testimony is a big change agent for God's kingdom. Well, let's, uh, can I
1: close in prayer?
0: Or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the,
2: the, this looks very similar to a diagram of culture that I used from Paul Hebert. Um, practices and products come out of beliefs, feelings, and values. Mm-hmm. So then we need truth, love, and holiness. So does holiness fit um, in, the, in the diagram? So it would be there instead of power. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this one. I'm just uh, wondering if there's a place in the diagram. I don't know.
1: Well, in a lot of ways, that, in you, our know, culture, you talk about you know. consequential. You talk, I think holiness, is wh- holiness. remember, doesn't mean being good. It means being focused. You know, it's something that's set aside for God only. What what those guys would argue, that if you knew Christ by his very presence in you, you're motivated to serve him and be set aside for his use. So in a lot of ways, what we've done is we try tried to conform people, I think, who aren't converted from the outside in, instead of insisting on conversion and then equipping them and feeding them and feeding this passion for holiness to be Christ-like that's in them. And I think for us pastors, we need to kind of take a serious look at that. It, it, one thing, it's much more dependent on God. I think it would make us pray more. And and say, God, work in these people's lives and show yourself to them. But yeah, I mean holiness, I think, in a sense, embodies and wraps itself around the whole thing. It, it's I'm set apart for God. That's what holiness means. Let me let me just close with this. You know, we all read the first Corinthians thirteen at weddings, you know, love chapter. The first three verses are absolutely devastating. Where and this is what he says. And again, go back to my categories of the evangelical baptistic. Cessationist Church, the mainline church, and then the Pentecostal Charismatic Church with their favorite little parts of this. And here he says, and I'm just going to capitalize. he says, if you're into, you know, speaking in tongues, and he names he names three gifts, the gift of faith, tongues, and prophecy in this little section. And he says this, if you're into this stuff, but you don't have agape, which I go back to the central thing about healthy community, has agape dripping all over it. You are noisy and irritating. And there's much of the rest of the body of Christ that would say, amen. You guys are just noisy and irritating, talking about your gifts all the time. But then he's an equal opportunity nailer. He talks about deep understanding and deep knowledge. You know, the mainline church is into very deep theology and all this stuff. And he says, if you've got all that, but you don't have agape... You don't love the world. You don't have a passion for the ones who Christ died for. What does he say? He says, You're nothing. You're a zero in the kingdom element. I, I like that now because he's talking about somebody else. <laughs> and, then, and then uh he finally he says, and if you give all that you have to the poor But you you know, now we're talking about the mainliners who just give, 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 give. But you don't have love. Again, he just says you're you're nothing. He said, You've gained nothing. You've gained zero. In fact, you're not, maybe you're not even going to heaven if you don't believe the gospel and you're just serving people out of some other motivation. I don't know. And, uh, and then he really hits it. He says, In fact, if you give your body up to be burned, if you become a martyr, that's sort of like the Hall of Fame. You get special little white gowns in heaven, it says so in Revelations. <laughs> Martyr dresses. But but it says the same thing. It says even if you give yourself up, but you don't love what he loves and give yourselves to the purpose of the gospel on earth, he says you gain nothing. That's sobering to me. So, Lord God, we just say again, fill us with a kind of love that's pragmatic and energetic and transformational that gets us up out of our boxes that makes us learn what we don't know, that makes us go to learn it from people we don't even like sometimes. Lord God, help us forsake our prejudices and everything else. that keeps us from being truly effective. And following the plan that you've laid out, we confess today that we believe your plan done your way in this holistic way will penetrate every situation that we are faced with here on earth because you do not feel... And as the scripture we just talked about says, love never fails. So, Lord God, give us your heart and make us wise in these days. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.
0: Amen. All right. Um, in two minutes, we're going to be taking our lunch break. Um, one thing that Jim didn't specifically mention, but I'm going to mention on his behalf for you to ask him about, is one of the um, very pragmatic engines of uh, or ways in which this has been expressed at the harbor is through the use of the alpha course and you've been using the alpha course how long now
1: 11 years
0: 11 years and you run it
1: three times a year
0: three times a year every year
1: yeah
0: and that has been
1: yeah and the, the reason is i've got it the reason is is that a lot the 90 percent of our people who aren't evangelists they're good at inviting but they're not good closers they can invite people to Alpha, and Alpha is a primary, wonderful way. And in the middle of Alpha, there's a Holy Spirit retreat, and we send a prophet along, and the guy just reads their mail, and they get impressed with the fact that God's real, and they accept Jesus. through. So they get the word in Alpha, they get the Holy Spirit experience, and they get it brought into community uh, because Alpha is a small group-based community thing. So anyway, it's great. We like it.
0: Yep. And we have found Alpha very effective here as well. And so just want to encourage you to consider that. And if you want more information, just you can connect with me. My daughter actually is the national coordinator for partnerships and training for Alpha. So I can give an email and I can get you hooked up to the source to get anything you need related to Alpha. And it honestly is hugely credible and helpful. All right. um, We're going to be taking our lunch break. Again, uh, this food has been prepared for us in-house, so you can uh, stay right here. Um, If you are willing and able to make a free will donation, you are welcome to do so if you are